Greetings to every single one of you. Thank you so very much for stopping by and making Paranormal Prowlers Podcast part of your day. Those awesome tunes are courtesy of the amazing Bobby Mackey, and I, of course, am your host, Tessa Morrow. Today we find ourselves in Savannah, Georgia. Now, I've only been one time, and we had like hundreds of miles left to go, so we unfortunately did not stay very long. But gorgeous place for sure would love to go back. And when I do, I am going back to this location. You know, Savannah is one of those places that is considered extremely haunted. And I don't mean a couple of locations here and there. No, all of Savannah. Think Tombstone. Think New Orleans. All of Savannah. (laughs) Now, while there are many haunted locations here to choose from, today's main focus is going to be Bonaventure Cemetery. It was established back in 1846 and it overlooks the beautiful Wilmington River with 160 acres. Bonaventure is Savannah's largest municipal cemetery. A wonderful wide variety of folks rest here eternally. This includes judges, poets, authors, silent film actors, bishops, mayors, ministers, diplomats, governors, journalists, (laughs) confederate generals, and so, so many others. Thousands upon thousands are buried here. Before it became Bonaventure Cemetery, it was home to Bonaventure Plantation. It sat on a 600-acre property, and the plantation itself was grand, and it had its very own private cemetery. Construction was completed in 1762, but did not stand long, as it was sadly destroyed by a fire a few years later in 1771, so like nine years or so, and then again in 1804. In 1779, the large home is turned into a hospital during the Siege of Savannah. Makes you wonder how many people died there during its hospital days. Probably a bunch. The estate would stay with the Tattnall family up until 1846. Departed Tattnall family members who remain here buried today are Harriet and her five children. All sadly died in infancy. Mary, Claudia, Joseph, John, and Sally. Ugh, you know, again, my heart goes out to that family losing five children, all at very tender ages. So, so sad. Peter Wiltberger, he becomes the proud owner of the plantation, but sadly this does not last very long as he passes away shortly afterwards. His son, Major William Wiltberger, creates Evergreen Cemetery Company in June of 1868. Now, in July of 1907, the city of Savannah actually buys Evergreen Cemetery Company and turns it public, renames it changing it from Evergreen to Bonaventure Cemetery. 
John Muir. He is a man that I've mentioned in past episodes, one of them being the Yosemite one and how he helped preserve it. John is known as the father of the national parks. He was a truly amazing man of many, many talents. He was a botanist, a zoologist, a naturalist, a glaciologist, an author, and so much more going on with John. He was also an amazing traveler. At one time, he goes on a thousand walk journey. Now, by the time he hits Savannah, he is dead broke. He's in the process of having money sent to him from home. But it's not like now where you can PayPal or Venmo or Zelle somebody. Home was sending money, but he had to play the waiting game. Where to stay when you don't have money? He comes upon Bonaventure and knows he's home. Temporary home, at least. In his own words, the cemetery was, quote, an ideal place for a penniless wanderer. There, no superstitious prowling mischief maker dares venture for fear of haunting ghosts. While for me, there will be God's rest and peace, unquote. Now, in his book titled The Thousand Mile Walk to the Gulf, he details his time at Bonaventure. The chapter is named Camping Among the Tombs. And I want to read it because it kind of gives us this inside look. So here we go. October 9th, after going again to the express office and post office and wandering about the streets, I found a road which led to me Bonaventure Graveyard. If that burying ground across the Sea of Galilee, mentioned in scripture, was half as beautiful as Bonaventure, I do not wonder that a man should dwell upon the tombs. It is only three or four miles from Savannah and is reached by a smooth white shell road. There is little to be seen on the way in land, water, or sky that would lead one to hope for the glories of Bonaventure. The ragged, desolate fields on both sides of the road are overrun with coarse, rank weeds and show scarce a trace of cultivation. But soon all is changed. Rickety log huts, broken fences, and the last patch of weedy rice stubble are left behind. You come to a patch of purple liatris and living wildwood trees. You hear the song of birds, cross a small stream, and are with nature in the grand old forest graveyard, so beautiful that almost any sensible person would choose to dwell here with the dead rather than with the lazy, disorderly living. Part of the grounds was cultivated and planted with live oak about a hundred years ago by a wealthy gentleman who had his country residence here. But much the greater part is undisturbed. Even those spots which are disordered by art, nature is ever at work to reclaim and to make them look as if the foot of man had never known them. Only a small plot of ground is occupied with graves, and the old mansion is in ruins. The most conspicuous glory of Bonaventure is its novel avenue of live oaks. They are the most magnificent planted trees I had ever seen, about 50 feet high and perhaps 3 or 4 feet in diameter, with broad spreading leafy heads. The main branches reach out horizontally until they come together over the driveway, embowering it throughout its entire length. 
while each branch is adorned like a garden with ferns, flowers, grasses, and dwarf palmettos. But of all the plants of these curious tree gardens, that most striking and characteristic is the so-called long moss. It drapes all the branches from top to bottom, hanging in long silvery gray skeins, reaching to a lengthy of not less than eight or ten feet. And, when slowly waving in the wind, they produce a solemn funeral effect, singularly impressive. There are also thousands of smaller trees and clustered bushes, covered almost from sight in the glorious brightness of their own light. The place is half surrounded by the salt marshes and islands of the river, their reeds and sedges making a delightful fringe. Many bald eagles roost among the trees along the side of the marsh. Their screams are heard every morning, joined with the noise of crows and the songs of countless warblers hidden deep in their dwellings of leafy bowers. Large flocks of butterflies, all kinds of happy insects, seem to be in a perfect fever of joy and supportive gladness. The whole place seems like a center of life. The dead do not reign there alone. Bonaventure to me is one of the most impressive assemblages of animal and plant creatures I have ever met. I was fresh from the western prairies, the garden-like openings of Wisconsin, the beech and maple and oak woods of Indiana and Kentucky, the dark, mysterious savanna cypress forests. But never since I was allowed to walk the woods have I found so impressive a company of trees as the Tillandia draped oaks of Bonaventure. I gazed awestricken as one new arrived from another world. Bonaventure is called a graveyard, a town of the dead, but the few graves are powerless in such a depth of life. The rippling of living waters, the songs of birds, the joyous confidence of flowers, the calm, undisturbable grandeur of the oaks mark this place of graves as one of the Lord's most favored abodes of life and light. On no subject are our ideas more warped and pitiable than on death. Instead of the sympathy, the friendly union of life and death, so apparent in nature, we are taught that death is an accident, a deplorable punishment for the oldest sin, the arch enemy of life, etc. Town children especially are steeped in this death orthodoxy, for the natural beauties of death are seldom seen or taught in towns. Of death among our own species, to say, Nothing of the thousand styles and modes of murder, our best memories, even among happy deaths, yield groans and tears, mingled with morbid exultation, burial companies, blackened cloth, and continents, and last of all, a black box burial in an ill-omened place, haunted by imaginary blooms and ghosts of every degree. Thus death becomes fearful, and the most notable an incredible thing heard around the deathbed is, I fear not to die. But let children walk with nature. Let them see the beautiful blendings and communions of death and life, their joyous inseparable unity, as taught in woods and meadows, plains and mountains and streams of our blessed star. And they will learn that death is stingless indeed, and as beautiful as life, and that 
the grave has no victory for it never fights. All is divine harmony. Most of the few graves at Bonaventure are planted with flowers. There is generally a magnolia at the head near the strictly erect marble, a rose bush or two at the foot, and some violets and showy exotics along the sides or on the tops. All is enclosed by a black iron railing composed of rigid bars that might have been spears or bludgeons from a battlefield in the pandemonium. It is interesting to observe how assiduously nature seeks to remedy these labored or blunders. She corrodes the iron and marble and gradually levels the hill, which is always heaped up as if a sufficiently heavy quantity of claws could not be laid on the dead. Arching grasses come one by one. Seeds come flying on downy wings, silent as fate, to give life's dearest beauty for the ashes of art and string evergreen arms laden with ferns and tillandasia drapery spread all over. Life at work everywhere, obliterating all memory of the confusion of man. In Georgia, many of the graves are covered with a common shingle roof, supported on four posts as the cover of a well, as if rain and sunshine were not regarded blessings. Perhaps in this hot and insabulous climate, moisture and sun, heat, are considered necessary evils to which they do not wish to expose their dead. The money package that I was expecting did not arrive until the following week. After stopping the first night at the cheap, disreputable-looking hotel, I had only about a dollar and a half left, and so was compelled to camp out to make it last in buying only bread. I went out of the noisy town to seek a sleeping place that was not marshy. Now, after gaining the outskirts of the town toward the sea, I found some low sand dunes, yellow with flowering solitigos. I wandered wearily from dune to dune, sinking ankle-deep in the sand, searching for a place to sleep beneath the tall flowers, free from insects and snakes, and above all, from my fellow man. The wind had strange sounds, waving the heavy panicles over my head and I feared sickness from malaria so prevalent here, when I suddenly thought of the graveyard. By this time it was near sunset, and hastened over the common to the road, and set off for Bonaventure, delighted with my choice, and almost glad to find that necessity had furnished me with so good an excuse for doing what I knew my mother would censor, for she made me promise I would not lie out of doors if I could possibly avoid it. The sun was set ere I was past the huts and rice fields, and I arrived near the graves in the silent hour of the gloaming. I was very thirsty after walking so long in the muggy heat, a distance of three or four miles from the city to get to this graveyard. A dull, sluggish, coffee-colored stream flows under the road just outside the graveyard, Garden Park, from which I managed to get a drink after breaking away down to the water, through a dense fringe of bushes, daring the snakes and alligators in the dark. This refreshed, I entered the weird and beautiful abode of the dead. All the avenue where I walked was in the shadow, but an exposed tombstone frequently shone out in startling whiteness on either hand and thickets, as sparkleberry bushes gleamed like heaps of crystals. Not a breath of air moved the gray moss, and the great black arms of the trees met overhead and covered the avenue. But the canopy was fissured by a many a netted seam and leafy-edged opening. 
through which the moonlight sifted in auroral rays, broadening the blackness in silver light. Though tired, I sauntered a while, enchanted, then lay down under one of the great oaks. I found a little mound that served as a pillow, placed my plant press and my bag beside me, and rested fairly well. Though somewhat disturbed by large prickly-footed beetles creeping across my hands and face, and by a lot of hungry, stinging mosquitoes. When I awoke, the sun was up, and all nature was rejoicing. Some birds had discovered me as an intruder, and were making a great ado in interesting language and gestures. I heard the screaming of the bald eagles, and of some strange waders in the rushes. On rising, I found that my head had been resting in a grave, and though my sleep had not been quite so sound as that of the person below, I arose refreshed, and looking about me, the morning sunbeams pour no through the oaks and gardens dripping with dew. The beauty displayed was so glorious and exhilarating that hunger and care seemed like only a dream. Eating a breakfast cracker or two and watching for a few hours the beautiful light, birds, squirrels, and insects, I returned to Savannah to find that my money package had not yet arrived. I then decided to go early to the graveyard and make a nest with a roof to keep off the dew, as there was no way of finding out how long I might have to stay here. I chose a hidden spot in a sense thicket of sparkleberry bushes near the right bank of the Savannah River, where the bald eagles and a multitude of singing birds roosted. It was so well hidden that I carefully had to fix its compass bearing in my mind from a mark I made on the side of the main avenue that I might be able to find it at bedtime. I used four of the bushes as corner posts for my little hut, which was about four or five feet long by about three or four in width, tied little branches across from forks in the bushes to support a roof of rushes, and spread a thick mattress of long moss over the floor for a bed. My whole establishment was on so small a scale that I could have taken up not only my bed, but my whole house and walked. There I lay that night, eating a few crackers. Next day, I returned to the town and was disappointed as usual in obtaining money. So after spending the day looking at the plants in the gardens of the fine residences and town squares, I returned to my graveyard home that I might not be observed and suspected of hiding as if I had committed a crime, I always went home after dark, and one night as I lay down in my moss nest, I felt some cold-blooded creature in it. Whether a snake or simply a frog or toad, I do not know, but instinctively, instead of drawing back my hand, I grasped the poor creature and threw it over the tops of the bushes. That was the only significant disturbance or fright that I got. In the morning, everything seemed divine. Only squirrels, sunbeams, and birds came about me. I was awakened every morning by these little singers after they discovered my nest. Instead of serenely singing their morning songs, they at first came within two or three feet of the hut, looking in at me through the leaves, chattered and scolded in half-angry, half-wondering tones. The crowd instantly increased, attracted by the disturbance. This I begin to get acquainted with my bird neighbors in this blessed wilderness, and after they learned that I meant no ill, they scolded less and they sang more. After five days of this graveyard life, 
I saw that even living on three or four cents a day, my last 25 cents would soon be spent. And after trying again and again unsuccessfully to find some employment, began to think that I might strike farther out into the country, but still within reach of town, until I came to see some grain or rice field that had not yet been harvested, trusting that I could live indefinitely on toasted or raw corn or rice. By this time, I was becoming faint, and in making the journey to the town was alarmed to find myself growing staggery and giddy. The ground ahead seems to be rising up in front of me, and the little streams in the ditches on the sides of the road seemed to be flowing uphill. Then I realized I was becoming dangerously hungry and became more than ever anxious to receive that money package. This, my delight, this fifth or sixth morning, when I had inquired if the money package had come, the clerk replied that it had, but that he could not deliver it without my being identified. I said, well, here, read my brother's letter, handing it to him. It states the amount in the package, where it came from, the day it was put into the office at Portage City, and I should think that this should be enough. Well, he looked at me and said, No, that is not enough. How do I know that this letter is yours? You may have stolen it. How do I know that you are John Muir? And I said, Well, don't you see that this letter indicates that I am a botanist? For in it, my brother says, I hope you are having a good time in finding many new plants. Now you say that I might have stolen this letter from John Muir, and in that may have become aware of there being a money package to arrive from Portage for him. But the letter proves that John Muir must be a botanist, and though, as you say, his letter might have been stolen, it would hardly be likely that the robber would be able to steal John Muir's knowledge of botany. Now I suppose, of course, that you have been to school and know something of botany, Examine me and see if I know anything about it. At this, he laughed good-naturedly, evidently feeling the force of my argument and perhaps pitying me on account of looking pale and hungry. He turns and rapped out the door of a private office, probably. The manager calls him out and said, Mr. So-and-so, here is a man who has inquired every day for the last week or so for a money package from Portage, Wisconsin. He is a stranger in the city with no one to identify him. He states correctly the amount and the name of the sender. He has shown me a letter which indicates that Mr. Muir is a botanist and that although a traveling companion may have stolen Mr. Muir's letter, he could not have stolen his botany and request us to examine him. The head official smiled, took a good stare into my face, waved his hand, and said, Let him have it. I gladly pocketed my money and had not gone along the street more than a few rods before I met a very large woman with a tray of gingerbread in which I immediately invested some of my new wealth and walked rejoicing, munching along the street, making no attempt to conceal the pleasure I had with the eating. Then, still hunting for more food, I found a sort of eating place in a market and had a very large regular meal on top of gingerbread. Thus, my marching through Georgia terminated handsomely with Jubilee of Bread. So, you know, you see those posts on social media, at least I do anyways, like, would you stay in a haunted graveyard for a million dollars? John Muir is probably like, oh, that's cute. Hold my beer. <laughs> I'll stay a week and then some. No worries. 
overnight, that's a cinch, baby. Now, I was excited when I found that chapter online regarding the cemetery and his stay there because he shares what he went through. He is kind of walking us through the cemetery, showing us the graves. He's talking about the wildlife, the birds, the sounds, the trees, just everything. And it's really neat. And I think it's so unique that it's like, you know, at least back then, now it's like a dust till dawn thing. Like, okay, we're closing the graveyard, we're closing the burial ground, cemetery, you can't come in, blah, 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 blah. It wasn't like that back then. So he was able to do that successfully, and that's awesome. Now, mentioned earlier, there are several types of people that lie here eternally. And I wanted to talk about some of those very notable burials. Now, the first one I want to talk about is a little girl named Gracie Watson. She sadly lived an extremely short life. She died at six years young. Cause of death was blood poisoning superinduced by a severe attack of pneumonia. The family had just celebrated Easter, not knowing that two days later, little Gracie would fall terribly ill and perish. Easter of 1889 would indeed be Gracie Perry Watson's last. Her grieving parents reach out to a local artist named John Walsh, and he is commissioned into making a life-size statue of the dearly departed Gracie with a photo that the girl's father gave him. This was completed the year after the death, sometime in 1890. The life-size statue of the six-year-old girl is special indeed and is one of the rare few funerary statues created to be that of a specific person not only in the cemetery itself, but in the state of Georgia. Little Gracie's burial location is one of the most visited graves in Bonaventure Cemetery. People come from all over to visit the little girl who left too soon. Her mother and father, they moved away and are not buried with their sweet little girl. In fact, they are not even buried together. Mom is at Albany Rural Cemetery in New York, and Dad is at Fairview Cemetery in Vermont. While she may not be reunited with Mom and Dad at the cemetery, as mentioned before, to this very day she is the most beloved and visited grave in Bonaventure. During her birthday and holidays, and sometimes who cares what day it is, I'm bringing something, many people come and they bring gifts for the sweet little girl, forever six years old. Since so many people do come to visit this little girl to protect the burial spot from the public, a gate surrounds the grave. Next to her statue is a stone marker with the inscription, Little Gracie Watson was born in 1883, the only child of her parents. Her father was manager of the Pulaski's house, one of Savannah's leading hotels, where the beautiful and charming little girl was a favorite with the guests. Two days after Easter in April 1889, Gracie died of pneumonia at the age of six. In 1890, when the rising sculptor John Walsh moved to Savannah, he carved from a photograph this life-size, delicately detailed marble statue, which for almost a century has captured the interest of all passers-by. Gracie is one of the resident spirits here at the cemetery, and you will hear more about that in just a few moments. The next notable burial that I want to talk about is John Walsh. He's the man behind Gracie's sculpture and so many others. He was a German-American sculptor who immigrated to the United States as a young man. I believe he was 11 or 12 years old. As a young man, he works at a stonecutter for almost a decade. 
Faith had it one day when Walsh was sent to Georgia after his employer was commissioned to make statues that would stand in the entrance of the academy. While there, he knew this is where he was meant to stay. And stay he did, my friends. At least 70 of his masterpieces, including Little Gracie's, of course, are scattered throughout the cemetery grounds of Bonaventure. John, he dies in 1922. So 101 years ago, he died. And while others had phenomenal headstones, thanks to John himself, he did not really have anything but a simple little tiny wooden sign when it came to his own grave spot. Then the Bonaventure Historical Society, bless their souls, commissioned a monument for the sculptor. Thank goodness, that's awesome. Savannah Morning News reports this on February 1st, 2021. So, uh, hello, super recent. Quote, Sculptor John Walsh is probably best known in Savannah for his little Gracie statue, created in 1890, memorializing Gracie Watson in Bonaventure Cemetery. He has over 70 sculptures in Bonaventure Cemetery and other local cemeteries as well in Savannah. His own marker is another story all in itself. Walsh was born in Germany in 1844. He came to the United States as a young boy, originally to live with family in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, after the death of his parents. He returned to Europe to study his craft and eventually settled in Savannah in 1890. He married a local widow, Sarah Bell Gilmore, in 1907 when he was 63. When he died, November 27, 1922, he was buried two days later in Bonaventure Cemetery in a plot originally purchased by Charles Gilmore, Walsh's wife's first husband. His wife died in 1931 and was interred between her two husbands. Walsh, however, didn't receive a marker until April 30, 2015, when the Bonaventure Historical Society paid to have a marker installed. The marker was planned for several years, and an interim sign with his name was placed outside the Gilmore Waltz plot to assist with finding his location in 1996. The design agreed upon was one that matched the markers for Sarah and her first husband. To honor Waltz's work, his marker appears to be incomplete. The right corner of the marker is not as smooth as the rest, and stonecutter tools are incorporated into the design. Why did it take 93 years for Waltz to get a marker of his own? While we likely will never know the truth to this mystery, there are a few theories. There have been rumors of Mrs. Waltz selling the marker he had prepared for himself as she feared that he left her out of his will, or she may have simply not had the money to purchase a marker. In May 1996, the great-nephew of Waltz, also named John Waltz, spoke at a Bonaventure Historical Society meeting and verified that Sarah, in fact, never placed a marker. This cleared up any question as to whether his marker was missing. Next stop is Marie Louise Scudder, who dies in 1934. She was the editor and owner of America's Times, a daily paper that is still active to this very day. She is referred to as the first woman in the South to own and edit her own paper. After the death of her husband, Colonel Myrick, she takes the reins and takes over the newspaper. And as it mentions in Bascom Myrick's obituary, quote, The Times recorder will now be under the management of his wife who is in every sense competent and able to conduct the business affairs of the paper. 
For five years, Mrs. Myrick has been associated with her husband in the editorial and office work of the Times Recorder, and for the present will continue her duties as manager and editor. Before Marie's own death, she has the remains of her husband exhumed from Oak Grove Cemetery and entered into the Myrick family tomb at Bonaventure, where they are reunited after her own death. James Neal and his wife Edith Chapman, both silent film stars, are buried side by side here at Bonaventure. James and Edith were married in 1898 and stayed married up until James's death in 1931. Edith herself dies a week after her 85th birthday in California. Her body is transported to Georgia where she is finally reunited with her true love, James at Bonaventure. One interesting thing when it comes to James Neal, he starred in over 110 movies within a decently short time span, starting in 1913 up until 1930, the year before his death. That's around six movies a year. That's pretty impressive in my book. And the final notable burial I'm going to talk about is American poet Conrad Aiken. He was born in Savannah in 1889. While he is but a child at 11 years old, he experiences a tragedy that many do not recover from, a murder-suicide in his family. The date is February 27th. The year, well, it is 1901. William Ford is a well-respected and much-loved eye surgeon and a physician, saving lives on a daily basis. For reasons unknown, the doctor murders his wife, Anna, then takes his own life immediately afterwards. After the deaths of Conrad's parents, he is sent to Cape Cod, Massachusetts to live with relatives. Aiken writes about this horrible event in his autobiography, You Shan't, saying how he heard two gunshots and how he was the one to come upon and discover the bodies of mom and dad. He writes this, After the desultory early morning quarrel, came the half-stifled scream and the sound of his father's voice counting three and the two loud pistol shots and he tiptoed into the dark room where the two bodies lay motionless and apart and finding them dead found himself possessed of them forever i saw on dailymail.com that the townhouse where the murder suicide occurred is now on the market for 4.9 million big ones Bonaventure is active with paranormal activity. One spirit who is believed to remain here, as mentioned earlier, haunting the burial grounds is Gracie Watson, dying from pneumonia at just six years old. Now, shortly after her death, reports came in from folks about seeing the deceased girl. They pour in to this very day. Not all sightings take place in the cemetery, but throughout Savannah as well. One location she has been seen at a lot, besides Bonaventure, of course, is Johnson Square. She has been witnessed by many to be running about the area, oftentimes playing in and around bushes, and she really enjoys interacting with the living. She's always seen wearing this cute white dress. The Palazzi Hotel is a regular haunt for her. So many people have seen her, and to them, she looks excruciatingly real. That is, until she vanishes before their very shocked eyes. 
And at Bonaventure, people have experienced her by hearing a little girl crying while visiting her grave and feel sudden bouts of extreme sadness. Many times people have claimed to have seen tears coming from the eyes of Gracie's statue. Sometimes they are blood-filled tears. Very, very creepy. Very, very sad. After Gracie's death, the staff at Pulaski Hotel, Gracie's parents' hotel, or one of their hotels, would claim to hear her laughter. While the hotel may no longer be there, that does not stop people from still experiencing seeing her apparition hanging out there a lot. She is a very active spirit. Bless her six-year-old soul. Legend has it. If you remove one of the little girl's gifts left behind by past guests, her statue cries. Another thing that supposedly happens is if you put a quarter in your hand, walk around her gravesite three times, open your hand, the quarter, it will be gone. Visitors, they have heard unexplained sounds such as baby cries, laughter, and dogs barking erratically throughout the cemetery grounds. And speaking of man's best friend, word is that there is a pack of phantom dogs that roam these burial grounds. Many people have experienced the terrifying encounter of being chased by them. They never see the ghostly canine, but have heard them barking, growling, and chasing them as if starting from a distance and you could hear them catching up to you. I mean, that would be pretty terrifying for sure. Vibrant, colorful balls of light have been seen floating about through the tombstones and folks feel that all too spooky feeling of being watched. So come on over and take a walk through one of Savannah's largest cemeteries. And if you see a young girl wandering about, it may just be little Gracie Perry Watson. This week's special city shoutouts go to Anna, Texas, Nalines, Belgium, Canyon City, Colorado, Newham, England, and Corydon, Indiana. As always, thank you so much for stopping by and making Paranormal Prowlers Podcast part of your morning, day, night. Whenever you listen and wherever you are listening from, it is really appreciated. You are all phenomenally awesome. Did you enjoy this week's episode? Listen to the others. They are all terrific. Haven't heard every single one yet? Really, there's no need to fret. Hit up any of those podcast platforms such as Podbean, Spotify, Blueberry, Pocket Cast, Apple Podcast, Podcast Republic, wherever you may roam to hear your other spooky podcasts, you'll probably find Paranormal Prowlers Podcast lurking in the background. Have a story of your own to share? Maybe you have a local haunt in your town, city, village, countryside, wherever you are that you think would make a good episode? Perhaps a curse of some sort? Or maybe you want to be a future voiceover? Reach out to me via the Paranormal Prowlers Podcast Facebook page or email me at paraprowl at gmail.com. I would absolutely love to hear from you. Thanks, everyone, and I will see you next week.